Welcome to the Appalachian Baptist Network. We seek to equip, encourage, and engage pastors and church leaders in the Appalachian region. We focus on having conversations on church revitalization in the mountains and beyond. Your hosts are Matthew Jacobs, Brent Snyder, Jacob Gwynn, and Travis Tyler. Welcome back to the Appalachian Baptist Network. And today, there's two of us. Neil, thanks for joining us again. Man, it's so good to be here. What we got on the docket today, Neil? Well, so I, I think we're going to go through some uh, some ideas about church growth and maybe some of the myths that a church growth philosophy can sort of naturally ex- adopt and start to minister or live out of. That's right. That's right. So as a church growth guy, familiar with this, we, I think we talked about this in the last episode, going back to Donald McGavran. Really, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think I've made this clear whenever we talk about this topic on church growth. Um, but let's also be clear that not every little thing that has been produced by church growth is necessarily helpful or right. And so we're going to look at some of those things today. So uh, let's just let's just dive right in here. I think we need to give a, a tip of the hat real quick so no one accuses us of plagiarism here. Uh, we have an article that we're going to be mainly working off of in the discussion today. And uh, who wrote that article, Neil? This is by Greg Laurie, who's who's a pastor out in California of, of Harvest Chapel, correct? I think so. And I think he's been doing it for quite a while now. He's a pretty faithful cap pastor that's been in it for some time. Isn't that correct? He's still, I think he's even still serving. So he, he's definitely still speaking because I know I've, I've seen him traveling and speaking some. So, so he's definitely still ministering. I'm not sure if he's still like the senior leader at that church. I think he's close, probably close to approaching retirement age. Wouldn't you say, Neil, at this point? Oh, definitely. Definitely. So anyhow. All right. Uh, so let's just, uh, let's tee this off and look at these. Yeah, so so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna serve as the church growth myth DJ and and kind of kind of dish them to you and and see if you can't crank them out of the park and and give some thoughts on them. But but the mm. first one that he mentions is is this: if it brings people in, it pleases God. What do you all think right. about that one? All right, yeah, I do think this is a myth because uh, there are lots of things that will bring people into the church, right? Yes. Uh, you know, if um, if you want to, you can look at a church that was in the area I used to serve in, in another state far away. They had a fog machine on stage. Have I told you this before? So I had no idea you were at a church I mean, with a fog machine. Well, not us. It was another church in the oh, area. Okay, and okay. the rationale behind it was, and they, they had like a praise band and everything. Rationale was, well, in Isaiah 6, the Bible says, God filled the temple with smoke. So that's why we bought a smoke machine. So we want to fill the Worship space was smoke. Solid. Very solid theology. <laughs> Makes sense if you don't think about it. You know what I mean? Yes, yes. I uh, hear you. I, I try to do that often. <laughs> I, I think this is worth pumping the brakes over since we've, we're already a little ways in. And let's, let's talk about what's the difference between a prescriptive passage and a descriptive passage in Scripture, right? Mm, uh, yes. So, Neil, what, what would you say the, the difference between those would be? Well, so, so, so simply this, a descriptive passage in scripture is, is a passage that reports something that happens. And, and, and for the sake of today's conversation, it's going to be something in the book of Acts that talks about what the early church was doing. And that's, that can be descriptive. Now, if it's prescriptive, that means it has a word not only for what the early church did, but it also has something for us to do today, an obligation for us to do today. So descriptive means it's just telling us what happened. 
Prescriptive means it's something the church is responsible for today. So that's the distinction between the two. Yeah. It's kind of like the guy who got up early in the morning and wanted to hear a word from God. So he randomly opened his Bible up and it was the story of how Judas hung himself. He's like, well, that's not very encouraging. So he tried to randomly find another passage and the next passage he opened to and his eyes fell on was the passage that says, now go and do likewise. <laughs> you know, just, for two. just describing what happens there. Uh, can you think of any prescriptive passages, Neil, that are in the new Testament for us that still apply? Oh man. So prescriptive. I, I, I mean, I would say to some extent, the passage we're, we're going to come to today. Um, and so, so I think offers both prescription and description is Acts two forty two to forty seven, right? Right. Um, and and so I think when we see models of the church doing evangelism, mm-hmm. um, I recently I, I hosted a prayer meeting at our church, and we looked at Acts four, um, where where the believers were praying for boldness after Paul and Peter were were arrested and threatened. No, I'm sorry, Peter and John, Paul and Peter, Peter and John were arrested and threatened. They came back, reported to the believers. The believers prayed, not God take it away, but God give us boldness. I think that I think we could say that that is prescriptive, that, that we are called to be about the proclamation of the gospel, even in the face of opposition. I also think that that seeking the Lord in the face of opposition, I would I would call that a prescriptive thing as well, something we ought still do today. Right. Fair enough. Is that I agree? Yeah, I was gonna say the Great Commission falls in that category. That one describes Jesus' instruction to the apostles. And I think that is also a prescription for what the disciples will do for generations to come. And uh, in addition to that, the great commandments that we find in scripture as well, uh, where you have service and then you have love for the Lord. In Luke chapter 10, it's describing the situation and then also continues onward for the disciples that will come after. So, no, and I, I just, I, I have to ask Travis, I mean, you, you look at a situation, um, where let's say we, we, we've got uh, Jacob taking a couple wives. Would you say, is that more descriptive or, or is that prescriptive for today? Well, you know, if we were in Salt Lake City, Utah, it would be descriptive. It would be prescriptive, but we're not. Okay. <laughs> Some of our friends in the Mormon church point to that passage and say it is prescriptive. I would argue that actually those men may have fallen victim to uh, accepting the cultural norms more so than accepting God's plan. If we were to rewind the tape in Genesis, how many wives did God make for Adam in the garden? It was just one. No. Uh, so I would say that those brothers uh, probably were, were following cultural norms to their detriment uh, in yes. whenever they're getting multiple wives. And so, and even in the New Testament, Jesus affirms one man, one wife in Matthew yes. 19. So I would say, no, those are definitely descriptive passages of helpful comment helpful comment but i gotta say man that had to be rough for solomon and for david especially solomon i mean i can you imagine uh what he had to hear you know from wife like as soon as he walked in the door from another or whatever i i I don't know who i feel worse for the wives or solomon or who so anyway Yes, because we can say that it, throughout the Old Testament, all joking aside, the Bible both describes that, that various um, figures in the scriptures had multiple wives, but also describes how horribly wrong that went in every occasion. It, mm-hmm. it, there's not really examples of that going well. So I think it's just an affirmation to your point that this is this was men who God used mightily that, that did not follow his teachings when it came to their marital status. And interestingly enough, early early in the book of Genesis, I'm preaching on that this week. So didn't mean to get to this, but 
but one of the early characters, Lamech, who, who is boasting and making himself out to be greater than the Lord, is, is the first character recorded to have two wives at the ending of the genealogy of Cain, which is just an example of our, our first straying into sexual sin looks like was taking more than one wife, I think is, is a fair uh, point to see that that, that immediately in, in early history was one of the ways we went wrong and, and entered into dove deeply into sexual sin. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point to be made here. And then back to our main point, we were springboarding totally off. off subject, though. Uh, you know, <laughs> it, it brings people in that pleases God. That's not always the case. And so people will sometimes take passages mm-hmm. and they will twist them to kind of get whatever they want into the church. I think we need to be reminded here of, you know, what is it that God wants to take place when believers are gathered together? And I think you can make a very strong case for prayer should happen from the lips of Jesus. My house will be a house of prayer. I think that the preaching of the word, we see that as both descriptive in Acts when Peter preaches uh, and also when Paul preaches in um, on Mars Hill, you know what I mean? That is both descriptive and prescriptive, totally different contexts, but, you know, still in, important there. I think that the church needs to come together for the reading of the word, both in the Old and New Testament, we have descriptions, and those are prescriptions for things God's people should be doing and should be evolved with. The, the main priorities remain the same, worship, prayer, evangelism, learning, and loving. And if what you're doing doesn't really kind of fit those things or aid those things or advance those things, just because it brings people in, you know, it, uh, my friend uh, John Strickland used to always say, uh, whatever you win them with, you win them too. So if you win them with some program or some slick thing you're doing on Sunday morning that's really not within those parameters that God's defined, as soon as that goes away, so they will go as well. So, And do you think, Trav, is it fair to say that, that one of the fruits of, and I would say to some extent, I'm probably not giving light to the full history, but, but one, of, one of the fruits of the, the late 80s, early 90s through the 2000s, one of the fruits of this church growth movement um, that has not been helpful is is we we ask frequently the question of how can we reach the lost, which is obviously a great question to ask, but we infrequently ask who does scripture describe or define us to be as a people of God. We we don't spend a lot of time on that, which then causes confusion, right? We we get yeah. outside of who God has called us to be in yeah. effort to fulfill a good mission. I think that we look at um, models like Rick Warren developed where he talks about kind of the core is the center he talks about drawing from the community, getting them a little further involved, like a target or basis. I think he might've used bases. Yep. Yeah, he did core. But even in that whole diagram there, there's not really much discussion about everyone's relationship to God. It's just about moving from community to core. And um, I, I think that we have to refocus and ask who is really the church and who is not because Paul spends time on that first and second Corinthians, second Corinthians two. And there is a clear line between those that belong to the Lord and those that don't. And there are times that the church gathers and I would kind of argue that there, you know, I don't know that every meeting has to be all about outreach and evangelism every single time. You know, I've wrestled with that some in my own mind and my own heart, but um, I think there are times and seasons the church may be in lament. There's, there's times that the church has to take care of family business like in church discipline matters. And I don't think there's a need to air all that out in front of visitors, you know, that dirty laundry and all that. So anyway. 
Yeah, and, and to some extent, insofar as we try to reach the community by becoming like the community, um, a part of our gospel witness is the distinctiveness of the people of God and their submission to Christ and their love for one another. And when we lose those things, that actually can impair our ability to proclaim the gospel rather than increase or enhance it. So, so I do think who are we called to be is also an important question. Also with how do we reach the lost, which is obviously vital. And you've got to say for those church growth guys, I mean, some of them in, in, in years, you know, you hear about various sin issues, but, but I also trust that in there is, is a genuine heart to reach the lost, ne not necessarily just a heart to build a brand or, or present themselves. So, so I, yeah, it, it, it's a tough thing, but if we're not asking who are we called to be alongside of how do we reach the lost, it, it definitely can get confusing and cause us to say, well, if people come in, it must be a good thing. Well, let's jump to number two. Oh. Well, before we jump to number two, let me, let me say this last thing on the first one. Um, I'm reading a book right now, and I've mentioned it before called Future Church. The author points out that it is much easier and quicker to know if a product sells than if it helps. And so sometimes when we're talking about will it draw a crowd or not, well, it may sell, and it may sell, you know, people sitting in the pew, but it may not always be helpful for the true mission of the church. I think that's what kind of boils down to here. Yeah. Hey, I think that's a great point. And and had that author, had he been to the future? And is he telling us what the church will be he like? He did build or... a time machine and he's come back with, he's got a TikTok if you're interested. <laughs> those guys are in a YouTube channel. No, I'm just that's, kidding. That's, that'll be next week's podcast. <laughs> yeah, so. He said the world actually ended in 2012 and this is all simulation. So we're, yes, we're all inside inside the machine. We've just dated ourselves. As you, a you'd think the internet would be better though, wouldn't you, in a matrix? Yeah, yeah you'd think so. So, so back on track, number two, the less confrontive or overt the gospel message, the better. So let me read that again. The less confrontive or overt the gospel message, the better. What do you think about that? I also think this is a, a message. I, I think that there is a certain level of offensiveness that the gospel carries in and of itself. I think the scriptures even lend itself to that. And so, you know, I, I know there's a there was kind of a rush to make Christianity more palatable by what I would call more liberal Christians. I think you know back in the early 1900s, I uh, got a great book in here about Christianity and liberalism, and basically what he says in the book is that um, they were trying to save Christianity from the Bible. You know, I mean that's kind of the push of it. And so if you're trying to, that's not going to go well. No, it's not. And so in a similar fashion here. Try, trying to make the gospel more palatable. I mean, there's no palatable way to tell somebody that they are desperately lost and without hope, that they are a sinner, that they are a, a enemy of God. I mean, I think you've just got to kind of lay it out on the table and let them know. I think the alternative is if you're not clear with the gospel, there are two huge dangers. One is that you'll have a lot of disciple faking and not disciple making. So you'll have people that maybe have an appearance of godliness, but as the Bible says, really lack the true power thereof. You know, they're familiar with the gospel and almost like inoculated to it. And then two, they could die and be lost and condemned to hell forever because the gospel was never clear to them. So I think you're messing with dangerous things if you try to adopt a principle like this. And again, the gospel is not just what we accept to enter into Christianity. It's our understanding of how God has worked to redeem us and who, who, who then we are called to be in Christ. So if we misunderstand that, 
or, or short shrift that by, by any standard or in any direction, it gives us an incomplete picture of what it means to follow Jesus. That could be a dangerous thing. But, but Trav, can I, can I sort of ask this in another way or at least sort of throw something at you that, that I've been looking into or talking with people in my church about recently. We were, we were at a Bible study uh, Tuesday night, and one of, one of the great ladies, loves the Lord, has a heart for prayer, was talking about the fact that she's so thankful we don't preach those fire and brimstone passages mm. as we had just come off of <laughs> two passages about sin and we're getting mm. ready to know as ark here in two sundays so Ooh. so that that is a a pretty massive expression of the judgment of god on the sinfulness sure. of man so so i i don't know if, if she realizes what's coming but but one of the things that gets you to think about and i i think about this thumb when i i also think about the um the the evangelist nikki cruz who was a gangbanger in the 50s or 60s in new york and david wilkerson who wrote the cross of the switchblade led them to the Lord. And so often you think about um, wanting to make sure we present the entire gospel to a person. And yet Nikki Cruz in, in, in his book, Run Baby Run, will tell you that what hooked him and drew him in was when David Wilkerson told him on the street corner, Nikki, Jesus loves you. Mm-hmm. And that that broke him and drew him to Christ. And so so the question in there is this, how, how do we balance between getting too far into the Jesus loves you um, oversimplification of, of the truth of the gospel and the need for conviction of sin. Where, where, where do we, how do we flesh that out in real time? You know, the context you just described there, you know, you got this kind of hardened gangster living on the streets, had a hard life. Everything is hard in his life. And I'm, you know, we, we haven't talked much about this, but I've been listening to the podcast on who killed Mars Hill that Christianity today developed and. I don't think those guys listen to our podcast, but if they do, I've enjoyed the work that they've been doing. So I would applaud them for that. But love I, you, love your show. Yeah, I, I remember, uh, you know, I, I think sometimes that's a little bit contextual. You know what I mean? Like uh, as to what part of the gospel appeals to a certain people in a certain place and at a certain time. Um, there was one fellow that was on the podcast and he was talking about how, you know, Mark Driscoll would make comments that churches today are just, it's like going to your grandma's house with potpourri baskets in the bathroom. And it's all about love, 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 love. And the people in Seattle, Washington were rejecting that. They didn't want anything to do with an all love message, but this imagery that Driscoll's preaching of an irresistible God who is, you know, he is pressing in. He is a King, a Lord of Lord, a King of Kings with a tattoo on his thigh who cannot be overcome. That was a much more appealing aspect of the gospel than Lord just loves you. And so I I think that you just have to be clear with each section of the gospel. And sometimes you don't know, you need to be clear with them that the Lord loves you. And I think that, you know, yeah, God is God and he is Lord. Sin is real. You are a sinner. Judgment is coming, but God is the gospel, right? Salvation. God has gone to great lengths to love us. And I think the balance is reflecting as best we can uh, every to the to the way that the word gives it to us uh, what God's plan for people's lives are you know God is holy we're not Jesus is the answer repent and believe you know it's bad news good news respond so yeah and, and, and realistically to your point you know not that I knew David Wilkerson um, but you can be confident uh, with this heart for ministry and the fruit of the ministry he had that that the entirety of the gospel was a part of the message he brought into New York City and, and used to, to make a difference around the world. So, so to one extent, 
one aspect of the gospel drawing in Nicky Cruz does not mean that he was preaching a limited or, or short shrifted gospel, but, but we want to keep moving here and, and, and jump on to number three here. And, and so let me throw this one out for you. Find out what your church is hungry for and feed it to them. What do you think of that one? Find out what your church is hungry for and feed it to them. That's an interesting one. Um, you know, that is kind of, <laughs> to reword this, uh, one of my mentors, Dr. Steve Drake, who we had at Southern, did you ever have Dr. Drake at Southern? I can't remember. I did. He he taught my intro to Southern course, you know, the one okay. or two hour course you took. Yeah, he's, he, he very much staunchly warned against this principle. He said, this is the shepherd equivalent of sheep coming up to their shepherd in real life if they could talk and saying, you know, this alfalfa grass you've been feeding us here lately. Well, we're not into it. You see that patch of uh, bluegrass over there? We want to eat that. We don't want the alfalfa grass, you know. And it becomes a very much a, a tail wagging the dog scenario. Now, you know, a lot of pastors get by with um, feeding their sheep what they want instead of giving them what they need. And if we had to be quite honest, the reality is some preachers have been at the stove at the griddle and they have been preparing junk food for a long time. And a lot of sheep are not used to meat from the word. They're used to milk it best. And they're actually used to a lot of sugary type sermons with a lot of stories and not a lot of in-depth and insight into the word. And so, you know, uh, I like to call those skyscraper sermons, right? Where it's just story after story, after story, after story, and you don't really get much there. Now, our stories powerful, our illustrations powerful. Why do you think Jesus taught in parables? They're absolutely powerful, but we have to help people connect the the meta narrative of Scripture, what God is doing as He is saving a people. We have to help them understand and see covenants and what what's the deal with that, and how that all connects in the Old and the New Testament. We don't want them to just think these are a bunch of kind of loosely tied in stories that don't have an overall an overarching plan that God has constructed there. So, so let me ask you this when we come to this one, because, because realistically, and, and, and probably any of us, even the two of us here on this podcast are, are like this to some extent, when we don't necessarily get, when we don't get what we want, we're not necessarily real pleased with that. And, and so, so as the senior pastor, if you're looking at preaching the entire counsel of God and challenging your people to grow both in the areas they're hungry for growth in, but also the areas that they wish you would just leave alone and, and you engage or encounter conflict, how, how do you wrestle with that as a pastor? How do you walk through that season? Because it is not easy to, to sense a leading from the Lord as the pastor and, and to take steps in that direction while experiencing resistance from the people you've been called to lead. How, how do you wrestle with that? Yeah, of course, you know, I think everyone here on the podcast is a fan of exegetical preaching. And obviously, to teach some of the things I've talked about, you have to do that. Not to say we don't ever topically preach, but even when you topically preach, it should be exegetical and, and pulling out the scripture. I'd love to tell you that in every case and scenario, when somebody was not pleased with how I was preaching, what I was preaching as I was moving through Bibles and books, that it all worked out. But to be quite honest, sometimes those people just kind of move on if they're very vocal about it. The reality is, most people that really belong to the Lord, I have found, are happy and satisfied with the word being preached. And to be quite honest, they're not looking for other things. They're not looking for sugar sticks and they're not looking for milk. They're interested in having the word and being fed and satisfied off of that. So I would say I, you're probably going to get some pushback from some folks and 
there's going to be one of two things. They'll either eventually be able to start handling the meat of the word and digesting that, or they're going to move on, you know? So. And, and how do we apply this? I'm going to throw it at you one more. How do we apply this to the issue of sermon length? I don't know that we agree on this one, you and I personally. So I'm not sure where you are. We didn't discuss this before the podcast. I'm a proponent of short sermons. So I, I, I aim for 25 to 30 minutes. And uh, I, I understand the arguments that people go to ball games and they sit for hours at baseball games and at football games. I get that, but, um, you know, watching a ball game is different than somebody standing up and, and kind of didactically preaching or teaching. Um, there's a lot more engagement and level of focus that is needed in some regards. And I, I think that, um, you know, it's kind of like, I, I would put it this way. Are you, you've watched some of these like Marvel mini movies they've made in between like now, like WandaVision and Loki yes. and all these different, well, think about it this way. What if they would have rolled out WandaVision, which I think would they make eight episodes of it or something like that? Something like that, eight or okay. nine or ten. Somewhere. How many people would have signed up for an eight-hour movie of WandaVision? I think hardly anybody. But how many would, people would have been a tough hanging show. on the edge, waiting for the next episode to drop by breaking it up into eight pieces? You know, you can still communicate and cover the same amount of truth, but I, I just think that you know leaving those cliffhangers connecting what was previously preached to what's being preached now. Uh, I'm just a proponent of, of shorter messages that I think, you know, we've got, we're in a culture where people watch TikToks that are 30 seconds to a minute and a half. And that is like max. And uh, I know some may be able to go longer, but I, I think people's attention spans are just shorter now in our culture than they used to be. So mm-hmm. Well, it was, it was Stott who said that every sermon should feel like 20 minutes, regardless of whether it is or not. Right. right. So, so yeah. So, so interesting question. I thought, you know, pastors are going to wrestle with, and, and I still, as a guy who preaches infrequently during the year, certainly wrestles with managing the time of my sermons and, and tries to improve. And, and so no, we, we've definitely talked about it before. Just wanted to uh, get your take on it for all our listeners. I think it's more difficult to preach a shorter sermon because you have to be sharper with your words. You, you can't just ramble on. So anyway. Yes. yes. Yeah. You definitely have to be able to handle the passage and, and have that word economy. So yeah. that, that is, that is a very true statement. Let me, let me, let me uh, jump us into number four here, target your church to a particular demographic. So target your church to a particular demographic. So I, I think I understand what this is saying. This one's a little bit misleading the way he wrote this. It's kind of like yes and no. I do think you need to understand your community around your church. I, I think that, you know, if you if you think about somewhere like Timothy Keller is preaching, some of the ways he's going to word certain things is going to be different than say um, where we are here in the mountains. You know, he Timothy Keller is preaching in a largely liberal kind of leftist leaning you know area, and so that's going to sound different at the pulpit than we are, but. To just say we're just going to reach one particular group, one particular demographic, uh, sometimes that can be at the expense of other commands, right? I think there's a there's a call in the Acts one eight challenge to go to all the different areas that surround us, right? We're called to go to Jerusalem, that's our area we live, which is Carter County, Elizabeth, and here Judea, our fellow countrymen, right? Whoever they may be, wherever they may be, 
Samaria, whatever culture has deemed the undesirables, and that changes from community to community, right? Uh, you know, here we have, a, we have an area that has a, a pretty bad reputation called Buck Mountain. Everybody here is kind of scared to go up on Buck Mountain on Halloween night because the, the, the rumors have been that they shoot out cop lights on Buck Mountain. It's kind of a rough area. So, you know, you don't want to go up there where you don't have a, a firearm or something to protect yourself, you know, and so that looks different. It isn't about race or anything like that. It's just kind of about the people group that that's living up there. You know what I mean? People are just kind of scared of them. You know what I mean? I, th- I thought you might bring up Kentucky being such a big Tennessee fan. So, I I have no room to trash talk anymore to anyone in sports with where the Vols are. So I like it's been it's been a bewildering twenty year experience. And I was just listening to a uh, hooked on the Vols podcast this morning, and our quarterback situation is still not resolved since Josh Dobbs. And uh, we had one quarterback that was showing a lot of potential. He just quit this week and I think is getting ready to enter the transfer portal. But we're not. This is not a sports podcast. This is a church revitalization podcast so just back, wondered about the undesirables in your opinion yeah that's right and so and then finally you know to the ends of the earth so the the x one challenge basically would push against this and say you're not called to just reach one particular demographic or type of people but you're called if you look through all those that's all people you know mm-hmm. so uh christ loves all people and in revelation it says there'll be somebody from every tongue tribe that will be gathered singing the new song to him. So God is after a people that is diverse. Oh yeah. And you get, you get acts or acts, you get act, um, Ephesians two and three. And, and you see, in fact, that, that the drawing in of a diverse people through um, and a unification through the work of the gospel actually, again, is, is to the praise and glory of God. And so God is more glorious when we see a diverse people, whether it be ethnically diverse, economically diverse, culturally diverse, when they're able to be brought together and we can look at them as a group and say, apart from the work of Christ and, and, and the love of Jesus within them, these people would not be a people, but they are. And so, so we short sell, short sell the gospel. I think when we build our church too much around our particular demographic. Yeah. I think the demographics are helpful and I don't think we should ignore demographics. Right. I think we should, (laughs) we need to understand who is around us. Right. What's the difference between your church and Grace Baptist church here? Well, one sitting in Toma, Wisconsin, and one sitting in Elizabethan, but we got the same mandates. It's just the yeah. people that's sitting around us are completely different. You know, our heating bill is a lot higher too. That's true. I, I don't know, man. Are y'all in the middle of a heat wave? Because it is. We're dying down here, man. We we finally have a cool day, but but it's been pretty warm, pretty humid. I ain't built for this, man. I'm a big guy. I go outside when it's like 96, and I'm like. I'm like Olaf from Frozen. I'm just doing whatever snow does in summer. I'm just melting. Turning <laughs> into a puddle. <laughs> so anyway. Well, uh, I think this is probably a pretty good spot to land the plane here. Any closing thoughts or comments here on myths of, of church growth? Well, on this last one, uh, Mark Dever co-wrote a, a very helpful book called The Compelling Community that that addresses this specific issue. How do we how do we build community around the gospel? Um, that isn't based on just merely drawing people together who like each other or are like each other. Uh, Really, really helpful book. But one of the points they make is that takes time. It's not something that necessarily happens quick. And and, and you had a a quote that that you were going to refer to from Peterson. I don't know if you were planning on closing with that. Yeah, that's going to be my closer. So 
Yeah, I think he addresses that a little bit as well, that, that there's other issues for us to focus on as pastors. And, and to steal a little bit of his thunder, I, I think that one of the things we have to continue to ask is, who has God called us to be as a church, but also who has God called us to be as a pastor? And, mm. and we have an obligation to be faithful stewards to him. And, and so that's a question that isn't answered by how big is our church getting or how much are we growing? And so, so, so there's a lot we have to think about, and yet we can't use this as a means to um, water down a desire to reach the lost mm. and do, do all things we can. Um, and for the sake of the gospel and to reach those who don't know them. So, so close us up, but uh, it's, it's been fun hearing from you and learning a little bit from, from your knowledge of church growth. Yeah, I think that uh, there's a principle here, particularly in that last part called the homogeneous unit principle that's a church growth. And that basically states, and this actually came out of India in the caste system. And this was Donald McGavern just sort of observing the fact that people who are in like a higher caste system where they were like doctors or lawyers or things like that, they don't really like, you know, hanging out with people who clean the toilets and do all kinds of stuff like that. So their, their principle was that, you know, you just want a church that, you know, the cast are all aligned and in the same, you know, that last one we looked at the demographic thing, we just want to reach people like us. And I would actually argue that's detrimental for a church to adopt that mentality because I, I don't think that, um, Jesus hung out with people that were always like him at all. You know, we see a, a quite a diverse group. Uh, you know, you have everybody from a medical doctor, Dr. Luke, all the way down to the woman at the well who had been with, you know, various different husbands and men. And he is very gentle towards her and he's able to move between all these different social classes and types. And, and he overcomes social class and he overcomes gender issues all with who he is. And so he still does that. Now, this is this last kind of quote here is by Eugene Peterson. Now, let me say this before I read this. Um, Eugene Peterson is famous for the message that paraphrase there. And so uh, this is a quote from one of his books. And he's a little bit more moderate than I am, you know, and when I read his stuff, I have to sort of, it's a bit like eating fish. You got to spit the bones out. So I'm not in agreement with every word that's in here, but he's maybe making a pretty good point here. Here's what he says about kind of church growth and churches being large and all that. He says, therefore, uh, is uh, there is, of course, nothing wrong with a large membership congregation, but neither is there anything right about it. Size is not a moral quality. It is given. It is what is there, part of the environment in which the pastor works. It is not the pastor's fault if he is born in a time of barrenness when it is difficult to do good. Size is mostly the result of cultural conditions. Congregations are larger when there is social approval to be part of a religious establishment. Small when there isn't. The pastor cannot choose his, and then of course this is Peterson coming through, or her culture. The size of the congregations we are serving is contingent on what decade we are born into we happen to be living in and what qualities of leadership happen to be in vogue at the time while pious ways in pastors will attract churchgoers in one place worldly sophistication will attract them in another place angry preaching will be rewarded at one time kindly preaching at another quite apart from whether each whether either the angry or the kindness communicates the gospel of jesus christ because these variables are notoriously inconsistent, spiritual and biblical integrity is far more important than the skill of propaganda is in doing pastoral work. The doctrine of providence of more significance than any 
image making publicity, publicity, which he would, we would probably say, you know, making the brand up. So basically to, to paraphrase what Peterson is saying is, you know, whether or not you have a large congregation may have more to do with where you are when you're born and the dynamics of the culture that you're pastoring in and less to do with you being a competent minister of the gospel. Now, we shouldn't use this as an excuse to be lazy as ministers, right? And say, well, I've just been born in a barren time. So that's why the church shouldn't work. No, I think that the elders of the church are, you know, we're called to tread, tread out the grain, just like the ox in the Old Testament. And that's hard work. But I also think that in this, there's a freeing understanding that ultimately God is in control and we can't control outcomes the way that we want to. And really we've got to get to a point where we can praise God for that point. Yes. So I agree. All right. Well, we're going to land the plane here. Hope you'll join us next week. Uh, We're going to be, we're working on a series in the background on preaching here soon. And I think next week we may be, uh, talking about, you know, character issues. We kind of springboarding off of uh, Mark Devers, or excuse me, Mark Driscoll's little series there on Christianity Today. He's not in it, but they're doing it over at Christianity Today. And uh, we have an episode coming up we've been kind of thinking about called How Can We Sabotage Ourselves as Ministers? And so look for that one soon. If it's not next week, maybe the next. And we look forward to seeing you then. You have been listening to the Appalachian Baptist Network. Thanks for joining us. If you have a question or comment for our host, please send an email to Network at gmail.com or send us a voice message on our Anchor website page at anchor.fm slash Appalachian dash Baptist dash network. Join us again next Monday.